Well, let's get to it. Ezekiel chapter 47. I, I want to share with you guys um, something here that is really cool. It's about a river. I like rivers. I grew up around a river. I had a river in my backyard when I was a kid. Uh, my parents back in 1970, I think it was, bought a piece of property for $3,500 back then. Um, it was out in the middle of nowhere, uh, but it was next to the Applegate River, uh, way up in the, in the boondocks. You know, the, the nearest town was like 35 minutes away. Uh, I remember when we went to town to go shopping, it was like, you know, once a month, we'd go get our groceries and, and then uh, come back out. So it was way out there. But, but man, I grew up, it was like Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn. My next door neighbor was, was Huck, I was Tom. And we basically, you know, when we weren't working uh, on the little farm there or with my dad, we, we, we had so much fun swimming and fishing. And uh, I caught more trout than any kid should be allowed to catch. Uh, we'd get our grasshoppers from the field and, you know, put them in our little handmade, you know, homemade box of grasshoppers. And we just throw it, man, you put a grasshopper on a hook, throw it in there back in those days, bam, every time, nice little trout. And uh, we just, we just kind of had the ultimate life. Even when we were working, I remember at the end of a day of bucking hay out there for the farmers out there during the summer, you know, in Southern Oregon, 100 degrees was fairly common. But we'd be out there bucking hay in 100 degrees and you'd have hay in your ears and your hair and behind your shirt and, and dust. And, you know, if, if you had hay fever, you were toast. But um, we'd be out there bucking hay. <clears throat> but at the end of the day, there was nothing more refreshing than just jumping into the river. We'd have these certain swimming holes. We'd, you know, pull our cars right up to the edge of the river, just jump in and just lay there. And it just felt so refreshing and good. And, and when I hear about the river of life in the Bible, I always kind of go back to that place of just refreshment and, and just the, the healing and blessing that came from just the, the river. And when I read river of life in the Bible, I think of the, the river that I grew up with teeming with fish and, and the trees were beautiful around the river. It's just, there's kind of a mental image that I have. I'm really thankful for that. Um, what the world needs now is a river of life. Uh, things are pretty dry, things are troubling, and people are bummed out, and, and even there's death. But I wanna show you a river that is gonna be here, uh, that, that Ezekiel's gonna talk about. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people say Ezekiel's just a little too crazy to read. Uh, we don't understand any of this. But it's all kind of the context um, that Ezekiel's writing about. And let me get, if you're just joining us, I wanna get you kind of up to speed. The last section of Ezekiel, particularly, uh, you know, chapters 40 to the end, 40 through 48, we have this um, really clear description of the millennial kingdom. It's about as clear as it gets in the Bible. The other books of the Bible don't really deal with the millennial kingdom with such detail. Now you say, well, what's the millennial kingdom? As it turns out, the, the Bible claims of itself that God knows the beginning from the end. He knows the future. And he's proven to be right on everything so far. Most of Bible prophecy has come to pass perfectly, including this, the first coming of Christ and how he came, everything from the donkeys that he rode in to the city he was born in, like all these you know, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies perfectly come to pass. But as it turns out, the Bible says, here's how the end of the world's gonna happen. And it's kind of an interesting little story and there's several big key events. And Christians debate on the order of some of these things and it's an in-house debate. And man, you're still a good Christian if you disagree with some of the order things, that's okay. But as I read the Bible, there, it's very clear to me that, that you see kind of the next thing on the list of prophecy that's gonna happen in the Bible is the rapture of the church. First Thessalonians chapter four tells us that we which are alive and remain and those that went on before us, uh, those who are dead in Christ, you know, dead as Christians, they're gonna be uh, joining all together at one point. It's called the rapture of the church. It's where we which are alive were taken up to be with the Lord. Well, Brett, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. It is, if you're reading the Latin translation of the Bible. Uh, that's where the word rapture came from. The word is harpazo in the Greek, caught up in the English, but we'll be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, the Bible says. That's the next thing that's gonna happen. Um, then, after the rapture of the church, seven years on this earth. What are we doing up in heaven? Seven years, we're in the marriage feast of the lamb, the heavenly honeymoon. Remember, the church is the bride of Christ. We'll spend those, that time in heaven with the Lord. Meanwhile, back on earth, back at the ranch, we'll be seeing on the earth something that's gonna be horrible. The Bible says, Jesus talked about this. It'll be the worst time in all of the history of the world. Worse than the Holocaust, worse than World War I. If you know your history, that was a dark, dark time. Uh, even like, if you know your history, there's some horrible times. Genghis Khan back in the, the steppe there in Europe and some of the things that he did, that was a dark time for humanity. 
But that's all going to pale in comparison to this coming tribulation period where God does two main things at that time. First, he pours out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. That time is coming. Remember, he took his church out. Why? Because you never see the righteous, you know, destroyed with the wicked in the Bible, and God doesn't do that. I believe that's one of the reasons the rapture will be at the beginning uh, before that tribulation period happens. Seven years of tribulation on this earth, both to pour out the wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world, but secondly, to wake up the Jewish people. Right now, the Bible says blindness has happened to the Jews, but God loves the Jews and has a plan for the Jews. And it's, it's brutal, they're gonna have to go through that time, but it's during that time where all of Israel will be saved. Romans 11:25 talks about that. So at the end of that time period, what's gonna happen at the end of that seven year period, all the nations of the world are gonna gather against the Jews, specifically Israel and Jerusalem. Um, now, 500 years ago, that would, people said, well, that could never happen. Jerusalem's not even a Jewish city anymore, and Israel's not even a nation. But as we've talked about, May 14th, 1948, Israel becomes a nation again and makes all this Bible prophecy again about the Jews and the end times and all the nations making war in Israel. It makes it logistically easily accomplished again. And, and it says that what will happen is they'll seek to divide Jerusalem in half, and they'll make war against Jerusalem at the end. All the nations, although this isn't the Gog-Magog invasion I talked about a couple weeks ago, different. That's at the beginning or right before the rapture of the church, the Gog-Magog thing. Um, but this is at the end of the tribulation period. It's going to be called the Battle of Armageddon, where all the nations kind of uh, gather together, but there'll be a hatred for the Jews in Israel during the tribulation period. And that's when Christ will come and say to the rescue. He will rescue Israel at the end of the tribulation with the second coming of Christ. Um, and, and that's where, you know, Revelation 19 says uh, that Jesus is going to return, not as a carpenter from Bethlehem, uh, you know, born in Bethlehem, riding a little colt of a donkey into Jerusalem, not that. He's coming as a conquering king to be the judge over all the nations. And he's going to make war against those nations, and it's, that's the battle of Armageddon. It will be finished when Christ returns. And he's going to come with who? Anybody? Ten thousands of his saints. The, the idea is ten thousands upon ten thousands of his saints. That's us. That's those who've died before us that were saved. And those of us that are raptured will be taken up into heaven, but will return with him, uh, the Bible says, when he comes in his second coming. Now, when he comes in his second coming, that kicks off a whole new time period called the millennial kingdom. And I believe that's a literal 1,000 year period because the Bible says it's a literal 1,000 year period. Some people say, oh, we're living in the millennium right now and all this stuff. No way, I sure hope not, because the Bible says during the millennial kingdom, things will be peaceful and wonderful and Christ will be ruling and reigning. Does that feel like what's happening right now? Uh, not even close. Uh, things are getting much worse as we speak. Um, but when Christ comes, it will, he'll fix all the wrongs and it'll be a time of peace and prosperity, end of transgressions and sins for a thousand years. At the end of that thousand years, there's kind of another uprising, and we don't have time to go into that, but it's, uh, Satan will be loosed for a short season at the end of that thousand years to deceive some of the remaining people on the earth there. But uh, then he'll be thrown into Gehenna, which is the word for hell. Um, well, what happens after that? Great white throne judgment, uh, which is where all those that rejected Christ and never believed will be judged before God, the great white throne judgment. And then this earth, as we know it, will be dissolved and destroyed. And there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. And uh, we all live happily ever after, after that. I guess with me on that, that's kind of the quick uh, Bible uh, timeline 101 of the way things are gonna go. So real quick, rapture of the church, seven year, tribulation, we're in heaven. Christ's return at the end of seven years, millennial kingdom, thousand years after Christ returns. That's what Ezekiel's dealing with at the end of this book. And um, he spends a lot of time talking about the millennial kingdom temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. Now, some of you are like, well, whatever, who cares? That's so far off in the future, and we'll see how everything else unfolds. And if that is, maybe we'll take another look at Ezekiel. Um, but here's the thing. There's a couple reasons this is healthy for us to look at the Bible. First of all, the Bible says of itself, all Scripture is good for instruction, correction, reproof, um, it, it, it's, it's there, it's inspired by God, all scripture, not just some, all scripture is for our, our instruction and correction. And so we can learn stuff 
about life, even from the millennial temple kingdom uh, conversation. So, so we come expecting to learn, even though it has something to do with the millennial temple, but we also um, don't wanna be tourists when we get into the millennial kingdom, at least I don't wanna be. Uh, you can put on your you know, Bermuda shorts and pull your socks up to your knees and wear a flowered shirt and have a big camera and say, hey man, what's that over there? You can be that dude if you want to in the millennial kingdom. Or you can say, hey, come over here. See this, this is the millennial temple and it's bigger than the one. And notice the stream that's coming out from the temple. You'll read about that in Ezekiel chapter 47. So you can either be a tour guide or you can be a tourist. It's up to you. Um, you say, just as long as I'm there. I don't care if I smell smoke. As long as I'm there, uh, I'm happy. Well, I understand that. But don't dismiss any part of the Bible as not important. That's a big mistake, okay? So it's important that we look at this. Now, the, the, one of the features of the Millennial Kingdom Temple, we learned on Wednesday night, by the way, this millennial temple is going to be much bigger than all the other temples. There was Solomon's temple and Zerubbabel's temple and Herod the Great's rebuilding of Zerubbabel's temple. And we went over the temple periods last week in, on Wednesday night. But this temple that is Ezekiel's temple or called the millennial kingdom temple is going to be much bigger. In fact, the footprint of the whole temple mount is going to be one mile by one mile. Now, some of you might say, well, Brett, I've been to Jerusalem and I don't think there's enough space for that. Doesn't matter. Um, do you think Jesus is good at excavation? He is. If you're wondering, the answer is yes, he's good at that. And I'll explain that here in a second. Um, and I'll, I'll show you how that kind of shakes out. The Bible actually tells us how this is going to work out. Um, and uh, it's going to be more than just excavation. But all that to say, this, this temple is, is a big deal in the millennial kingdom, and it's where Christ will rule and reign from there in Jerusalem. So it will come into play a major part of the millennial kingdom. So let's read about this little river. That, I'm gonna just use this river as an example of how we can learn stuff about our own life today by studying things that are gonna happen in the future. It says in Ezekiel 47 verse one, afterward he brought me again to the door of the house, that's the temple, and behold waters issued out from under the threshold of the house eastward for the forefront of the house stood toward the east, and the waters came down from under, from the right side of the house at the south side of the altar. Then brought he me out of the way of the gate northward, and led me about the way without unto the utter gate by the way that looketh eastward. And behold, there ran out waters on the right side. And when the man that had the line in his hand, do you guys remember this guy? measurement men. That's what we called him on Wednesday night. He's running around measuring everything, and he's got a ruler in his hand. This guy goes to Ezekiel and says, hey, come with me. In verse 3, with a measuring line in his hand, and went forth eastward, and he measured a thousand cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The waters were to the ankles. Then again, he measured a thousand and brought me through the waters, and the waters were to the knees. And again, he measured a thousand and brought me through, and the waters were to the loins. Afterward, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not pass over, for the waters were risen, waters to swim in, a river that could not be passed over. And he said unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen this? Then he brought me and caused me to return to the brink of the river. Now, when I had returned, behold, the bank of the river, um, there were many trees on the one side and on the other. Then said he unto me, these waters issue out toward the east country and go down into the desert and go into the sea, which being brought forth into the sea, the waters shall be healed. Verse nine, and it shall come to pass that everything that liveth, which moveth, whithersoever the rivers shall come, shall live. And there shall be very great multitude of fish because these waters shall come thither for they shall be healed and everything shall live whither the river cometh. And it shall come to pass that the fishers shall stand upon it from Engedi, even unto Eglatnim, and they shall be a place to spread forth nets, and their fish shall be according to their kinds, as the fish of the great sea, exceeding many. But the miry places thereof and the marshes thereof shall not be healed, they shall be given to salt. And by the river upon the bank thereof, on this side and on that side shall grow all trees for meat, or literally better translated, fruit. 
whose leaf shall not fade, neither shall the fruit thereof be consumed. It shall bring forth new fruit according to his months, because their waters they issued out of the sanctuary, and the fruit thereof shall be for meat, or, or fruit, or food, and the leaf thereof for medicine. We have a river, and this description gives us some detail that I think is kind of important, uh, that you and I can learn about and know. Now, the first thing that we need to kind of recognize is this river is unique because it sort of looks like a water feature. Those of you that are into landscaping, you know, it's kind of fun to have a water feature in your backyard because something about running water, the sound of trickling water is kind of refreshing and nice. Um, so in some ways, this, this is like you see this new temple in Jerusalem, but now you've got this river flowing from the threshold of the eastern door of the temple. The main entrance, you have this water flowing from the temple. Where does it come from there? Well, from the ground. It's going to come up from the ground through the temple. So you've got this temple that has this water flowing out of it. And then this narrative says it's going to flow out through the east gate, and then it's going to flow down two directions, westerly toward the Mediterranean Sea and eastward toward the Dead Sea. These are the two seas that are talked about here. Um, but the water's going to flow both directions. And it says it's going to bring back the, the Dead Sea to life. That's what it says here. There's going to be trees. There's going to be fruit. Um, and it gets deeper and deeper the further down the river you go. That's what we learned so far. You say, well, Brett, I don't know. Again, I'm not sure I care about this. Well, first of all, let's, let's remember, what is the temple a beautiful picture of? If you remember, we studied this um, there, there's, when we were talking about the various temples, but the temple is always an illustration of a picture of, of three main things in the New Testament. In the New Testament, the, the, the temple is referred to first and foremost, Jesus Christ himself. Do you remember when Jesus stood on the temple mount? And they were saying, look at this temple. Pretty amazing, huh? And Jesus, you know, was there watching and looking. He wasn't impressed that much. But then they came and said, show us a sign that you are who you claim to be, they said to Jesus. And Jesus said, listen, if you destroy this temple, in three days I will raise it up from the dead. Speaking of his body, it says there, Jesus spoke of his body as being a temple. Jesus is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Old Testament, along with the tabernacle of the Old Testament, for you Bible students, all those points of the temple, when you study Exodus and Leviticus and, and during David's era and Solomon building the temple, all those temple things, tabernacle things, point to Jesus Christ in beautiful and perfect ways. Then Jesus comes along and says, if you destroy this temple, I will raise it up in three days, resurrection. So when you see this temple in Ezekiel, it's also pointing to Jesus Christ. But from this temple, unlike all the other temples in history, this one has water flowing from it. What is that speaking of? Is there any water that flowed from Jesus? Well, the answer is yes. We can talk about a number of things. When they you know, crucified him, they stuck a spear in his side and out from his temple, if you would, came a mixture of blood and water. There's, there's some interesting analogies there. But maybe even more than that, um, what we start to realize is Jesus is this river of life flowing forth out of the temple. Uh, let me illustrate that and maybe um, try to make that point for, for uh, some of you that are maybe a little newer to the Bible. There's some really cool connections here. So we start with this river in Ezekiel 47, verse 1, where it's explaining how from out of the house, out of the temple, water flowed. This should be the hint to let us know that we're talking about, in a picture sort of way, uh, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is a giant picture book, by the way, and it, it pictures all the New Testament truths. And that's why the Bible says of Jesus, lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, saith the Lord. Um, so it's all the Lord. It's all about Jesus. So this temple, water flowing from it. Now, before I get into that a little deeper, uh, um, we're going to take a look at another passage real quick. Would you keep your finger here in Ezekiel 47 and turn over to Zechariah chapter 14? It's easy to find Zechariah if you go to the very end of the Old Testament um, and then just turn back a few pages. You, you get to the very last book of the Old Testament, first Italian in the Bible, Malachi. Um, or Malachi probably is better. But turn, turn to Malachi and just turn back a few pages and you'll be in Zechariah chapter 14. And in Zechariah, he's also a prophet who talks about when Jesus returns, the second coming of Christ, and what's going to happen as soon as he comes. 
Question, where did Jesus, after he died on the cross and where he was buried and then he rose from the grave and then, and then he showed himself to hundreds of people, where did Jesus then ascend into heaven? What, where did he do that geographically, anybody? The Mount of Olives in Jerusalem. There on the outside of the city of Jerusalem, he was up on the Mount of Olives. Question, where will Jesus come when he returns his second coming? Mount of Olives, same place he left is the same place he's coming back according to the scriptures. And by the way, you say, this sounds familiar. Like, didn't Muhammad leave from the Temple Mount and stuff like that? These are just imposters. These are just people who read the Bible and said, hey, let's make something sort of like the Bible. Remember, Islam came 600 years after Christianity. You have to understand uh, when, you know, Muhammad left from the Temple Mount and, or what was supposed to ascend there according to the Grand Mufti. Uh, it's a long story, but it's just trying to act like Jesus in some ways. But Jesus is the one who really did ascend from the Mount of Olives. He will return, according to the scriptures, on the Mount of Olives. Zechariah talks about that day. It's kind of fascinating. Verse 1 of chapter 14. Behold, the day of the Lord. That's when Christ comes. The day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Speaking of Jerusalem. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. That's that battle I was just telling you about at the end of the tribulation all the nations, and it's going to culminate in the battle of Armageddon, all those nations I will gather against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Um, And then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Uh, A couple interesting points to note. One of the things that's going to happen when that's going to be the trigger that makes Christ return is Jerusalem's going to be hanging by a thread as the nations of the world will attack it. And it's going to be a bad day in Jerusalem. It's going to be, you know, these nations. But Christ will say, that's it. And he returns, his second coming, and he's going to go to war. And, and, and you say, well, they're going to split Jerusalem in half? That's an interesting thing that they're going to seek to do. The enemies of Jerusalem are gonna seek to divide Jerusalem in half, it says here. If you know your geopolitics, what do they want today for Jerusalem? If you know, they wanna chop Jerusalem in half today. It was our president, President Barack Hussein Obama, who said, we need to get Israel back to the 1967 borders. And he still believes that to this day, along with the Biden administration. That's one of the things they believe is Jerusalem should be chopped in half. Um, Just look up the 1967 borders and you'll see that that splits Jerusalem in half. Um, And it's interesting that that's what the world wants to do. The Bible says the nation that tries to handle Jerusalem in Zechariah 12, just the two chapters earlier, says that nation's handling a cup of trembling, a deadly poison. You don't try to mess with Jerusalem. You don't try to chop it in half. But the nations will try to do that. And that's the very thing that's gonna, where Jesus says, that's it, I'm coming. And he comes in his second coming and he will fight. And it says here, this is an interesting sort of phraseology. Uh, he says, the Lord will come uh, and fight as when he did, as he fought in the day of battle. When did the Lord fight in battle? Have you ever thought about that? There's several instances in the Bible where the Lord actually showed up and fought. Um, Do you think that was a very tough victory to fight against armies of men? Um, One of my favorite mentions of this is Joshua chapter five. You remember Joshua was getting ready to go take the land of Canaan? And suddenly this angel type being with a flaming sword standing in front of him, he's totally freaked out. Uh, And you remember what Joshua says? Are you for us or against us? And do you remember the answer? No. I love that answer. Are you for us or against us? No. Um, I think sometimes we think God's on our side. God's a good red-blooded American. (laughs) If we as Americans said, God, are you for us or against us? I think he'd say the same thing that he said to Joshua. He'd say, no. Well, are you for us or against us? Nope. The answer is he's God. Um, It's not, you know, as much as if he's for us. The question is, are we for him? That's the bigger question. But that's when the Lord came and fought in the day of battle. And that's when Jericho, for example, was wiped out. And it wasn't the army that did it. It was just this invisible hand of God that pushed over the walls of Jericho and wiped out the city. Like when, when God goes to battle, it's, it's, it's over. It's curtains for the other team. 
So this is what's gonna happen. Like in the days of Jericho, when the Lord took over the city of Jericho, the Lord's gonna come and fight when he comes to return, and that's gonna be at the battle of Armageddon. Well, it goes on in verse four. Now this is where he returns and how he returns, verse four. And his feet shall stand that day when he returns upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof, or split in two is a way of saying that, um, toward the west and toward the east, and shall be a very great valley. And half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And, verse 5, ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal. Yea, ye shall flee, like as you fled from the days of the earthquake day, uh, in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. Now pause for a second. What's going to happen? He's going to put his foot on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split massive earthquake, like in the days of Uzziah. Well, what earthquake happened in the days of Uzziah? As it turns out, um, archaeologists in their digs in the Middle East, there was a massive earthquake that shook much of the Middle East back during the time of Uzziah. Archaeological digs, there's a bunch of cities that were never rebuilt because of this one earthquake. They believe it was a greater, somewhere greater than 10.0 on the Richter scale. It was a huge earthquake back in the days of Uzziah. Many people died. It's, it's, an, inter, it's an interesting historical fact. And here the Lord says, like that day, this earthquake will be that big. And it says, the Mount of Olives will split in two and the, the crack of the valley will go from Jerusalem all the way to Azal. You say, well, where's Azal? As it turns out, Azal is another name for the ancient city called today Petra. Um, if you've been to Israel with me, I take our groups to Petra. You have to go into the nation of Jordan. It's in a whole other country. You go to Jordan, you go up on the mountains of Moab, and you end up in, in the city of, of Petra. And that's where this great fault line will crack all the way from Jerusalem to Azal. That's a huge, huge thing. Um, if you've been to Israel with me, or maybe you've been to Mount Nebo in the, in the country of Jordan, and you can look over Israel where Moses looked over Israel. If you get a clear day as the sun is setting and going down, you can see the lights of Jerusalem way off in the distance, way, way off in the distance. And that crack's gonna go right through there, through the, the valley, through the mountains of Israel, through the valley, all the way to the country of Jordan. This is gonna be a big earthquake. So this, by the way, solves our little excavation problem in Jerusalem. Remember, we're like, how are they, how are they gonna put a big temple that's a mile by a mile uh, in Jerusalem? Well, no problem. The Lord just kind of re resurfaced uh, everything. When he puts his foot down, the whole thing splits wide open. Well, yeah, Brett, but what about the old, the temple that will be there during the tribulation? I believe that's gonna be part of the deal. The Lord will destroy that temple. Does anybody know why? Why will he destroy that temple? Anybody? The tribulation temple, it'll be destroyed because that's where the abomination of desolation happens. Remember, this coming world leader will set himself up to be worshiped in the temple in Jerusalem during the tribulation period. Jesus talked about this. Daniel talked about this. Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter 24 and, uh, and Daniel talked about it in Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 11. But anyway, that's a, a temple that had been totally defiled, the one that will be rebuilt during the tribulation period. So that'll be destroyed. As soon as Jesus touches down, boom, the whole uh, topography of Jerusalem will change. The new millennial kingdom temple will be built. But it's also during that time, water will gush forth from the temple mount. Let's keep reading. We're almost done here in Zechariah, but Zechariah 14, um, verse, uh, verse six will go on. It says, and it shall come to pass in that day that light shall not be clear, uh, clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that at the evening time it shall still be light, is the idea. And it shall be, here it is, verse eight, in that day, when Jesus puts his foot on the Mount of Olives, in that day, that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, which is the Eastern you know, Dead Sea, and half of them to the Hinder Sea, Mediterranean Sea, in the summer and the winter it shall be, so year-round river. And verse nine, the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day, and there shall be one Lord and his name one. Man, all the questions about does God exist and who are true gods and what are fake gods, 
all those questions will be done. There's only going to be one Lord, and he's going to rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. That's what Zechariah is describing here. But notice verse 8. Here it says that it would be water that's living water. That should be a flag for Bible readers. Because living water can mean just bubbling water with a current, but it also oftentimes is pointing to living water, that is Jesus Christ. But there's also another thing we gotta note. Uh, Living water often refers to Jesus. Jesus talks about how he's the source of living water that makes you alive. Um, But what else in the Bible is typified by living water? Anybody wanna jump in on that one? Right, somebody said it, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is linked to the living water. You say, well, which one is it, Jesus or is it the Holy Spirit? The answer, yes. Remember the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one being, three parts. It's, it's the mystery of the Trinity. But this, this should be a red flag. This river is a picture pointing us to the living water, Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit that points us to Jesus. That's what Zechariah is giving us sort of an ind- indicator Uh, Now let's go back to our text here in Ezekiel. Because we see out of the temple comes the living water, this river that Ezekiel spends a lot of time talking about. I'd like to kind of break this down. um, uh, You know, and and the first thing we see here is it's it's the river of life. It's the river of life. We we see that because it's living water and everything it touches is is, uh, made alive. But that's what Jesus claimed to be. Jesus claimed to be this living water. Now, let me, let me tell you, this is a great, great little part of history. The Jews, after Ezekiel's book was written, the Jews had a little ceremony that they did because of Ezekiel 47. They heard about the river that will flow from the Temple Mount. That, that'd be when the Messiah would come. Now, the Jews missed the Messiah. They didn't realize Jesus was the Messiah for the Jews and for the whole world. The Jews missed that. But they shouldn't have, and Jesus even made a declaration. They could have, if they'd been really listening and seeing what was going on, they could have seen this. But the Jews had a little festival, part of the, 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 the great feast there in Jerusalem. On the last day of the feast, the priests would go down the southern steps down into the old city of the city of David, and they'd go to the pool of Siloam where they'd scoop out a vessel, a golden vessel of, of water from the pool of Siloam. Then they'd parade up the hill with the priests carrying the golden vessel and they'd blow their shofar trumpets and they'd, uh, they'd say, shofar, so good. And uh, they didn't say that, I just made that up. Um, and they would beat their drums and they would celebrate as the water's coming up. And then they'd go up to the Temple Mount and they'd pour the water out on the Temple Mount, just pour it out. Then they'd go back down the Southern Steps, down to the city of David, get another vessel, fill it up, come up, dancing, partying. Seven times they'd do this, and each of the seven times they'd pour out the vessel on the Temple Mount, this water from the pool of Siloam. And then what they'd do, this was the mysterious part, and we learned all this, by the way, from Herodotus. You don't read about this in the Bible. Herodotus writes about the Jewish celebration of this water uh, celebration. They would, on the eighth time, they'd go down, but instead of scooping up water, they'd scoop up nothing. They'd go up on the eighth time and they'd pour out the vessel, but no water would come out. And that was their symbolic understanding that that when when the Messiah would come, that river would be flowing. And the absence of water means the, the Messiah hasn't come yet. It was a symbol, it was a celebration knowing that someday water will flow from the Temple Mount when the Messiah comes. And the Jews celebrated that right up until about, um, uh, you know, just the time of uh, AD 70. After AD 70, when the Romans crushed Jerusalem, that celebration was no longer. Now, here's what's interesting. In 2004, they discovered the real pool of Siloam. If you went to Israel before 2004, you went to a pool probably at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel that um, they said, this is the pool of Siloam. And, And we all thought it was at that time but then they actually found the real one and they found the placard and everything that named it the Pool of Siloam. And it's down a little lower than that little pool that you thought was that. But once that pool was starting to be dug up archeologically and realized this is the Pool of Siloam, in 2014, a bunch of Jews in Jerusalem said, we need to reinstitute the the festival of water at the last day of the great day of the feast. In 2014, they started doing that. The priests go up, they bang their drums and blow the shofars, just like in the old days, and they go up and pour out water. Um, But here's the thing. 
Um, what are they doing? They're still commemorating that their Messiah is going to come. Now you say, okay, Brett, why did you tell us all that story? Well, as it turns out, Jesus was there when it was during his lifetime. Jesus was on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem on the last day of that great day of the feast. He was there when they were doing this water festival thing and pouring out the empty vessel saying, someday the Messiah will come and bring us the living water of Ezekiel chapter 47. And they were standing there thinking, someday we look forward to that. So Jesus then, this is, I call this the airplane scripture, uh, John chapter 737. Sorry, it's the way my brain works, how I remember things. Um, it, it, it's Jesus, he, he busts out on the scene on the last day of the great day of the feast where they're pouring out this water. And Jesus says on the last day of the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures said, what scripture? Ezekiel 47. From his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus making this declaration on the last day of the great day of the feast is saying, I am this river. I am the water of life. It's something Jesus talked about a lot. Remember the woman at the well? He came and asked the woman, hey, would you give me something to drink? And she said, how is it that you being a Jew asked me, a woman of Samaria, to give you something to drink? And Jesus replied and said this in John chapter four, Jesus said, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of springing up unto eternal life. Jesus is the water of life that the Bible speaks of. And the reason I go into this is when you get to the millennial kingdom and you see this temple and the water flowing, you know, this is pointing back to the period of the church age that you and I live in when we had access to Jesus, who is the water of life. Um, that's what this temple will do, is point back in history. So it's the water of life, and we know that Jesus is the water of life. Hang on to that for a second. Let's go to point number two. It's not only the water of life, but this river of Ezekiel is the water of depth. Not death, depth. The water of depth, yeah. Remember the measurement man going out a hundred, or pardon me, a thousand cubits and saying, you know, walk out and then go out in the water. And he wades out there and it's ankle depth. And then he goes out further a hundred, uh, a thousand cubits more to his knees, a thousand cubits more to his loins. What's going on with that? Why does measurement man make Ezekiel take a swim? And what's that all about? Well, the Jewish rabbis teach about this passage that it has to do with a, a sort of a symbol of a person's relationship with God and their fervor for God. If you put it in New Testament terms, you, you, you can see some correlations there. Um, the, the rabbis would teach that when, when you go to your ankle deep, that speaks of your walk, your walk with God, like Enoch who walked with God and pleased God. Walking with the Lord is something you and I should do. It's steady progress. It's not sprinting. It's not racing. It's walking with the Lord. Um, so that's the ankle deep. Then he went to the knees. The knees in the Bible speak of prayer. I love old James, the apostle, after Jesus died and rose from the grave. James got a reputation of being Mr. Prayer Warrior. So much time did James spend on his knees. Church history tells us that he had permanent knots on his knees from kneeling and praying so much. Um, you know how camels' knees go backwards? When camels go down, they have these little cali huge calluses on their knees. And so the, James' nickname was Old Camel Knees because he was on his knees in prayer so much. I love that about James. Um, but that's the idea uh, that, that Ezekiel was taking his relationship ankle deep, the walk, knee deep, which is prayer. What about the loins? The third time he went into the loins. Um, the Bible speaks of girding up your loins, which is sort of an idiom of service, serving the Lord. Um, it also was a, a, a way of battle. If you were girding up your loins, you were getting ready, ready for battle. Um, so battle, service, uh, that's what the loins were pointing to. But then the very last time he goes in and it's deep. He can't even touch the bottom. And he, he says he was like swimming in a river. Um, and many times when you talk about a river, the river of life, and you're swimming in it, it's pointing to what the Bible talks about, the fullness of the spirit-filled Christ, Christian life, getting the fullness of everything God wants for you. And man, I gotta, I gotta kind of camp out on this part a moment. You can't talk about the living water without talking about the Holy Spirit. 
the, the, the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus is the living water, but the Holy Spirit is also the living water. And some of you might say, well, Brett, I think that the, uh, I'm really glad Aether Creek's not one of them charismaniac churches where there's people flopping around in the aisles and swinging from the chandeliers and, uh, you know, whooping and hollering and being slain in the spirit. Why don't we do that? Is Athe Creek a charismatic church? We're not charismaniacs, we're, charisma- we're charismatics with a safety belt. What do you mean by that? What's the safety belt for us, anybody? The Word of God, the Bible. See, some of our charismatic brothers and sisters, they get a little crazy with the slaying of the Spirit and the flopping around and speaking in tongues out of order and all this stuff. And, and people get a little confused, like, what's going on here? And again, it's, an, it's, it's um, you know, they're still saved and they're Christian people. But the problem is they forget to read 1 Corinthians 14 that Paul puts very strict rules on the way that we're to see the manifesting of the Holy Spirit in the church. And a lot of churches blow off all the biblical rules. Um, and that's, that's a mistake, that's a mistake. Um, what do you mean by that? Well, speaking in tongues, Brett, why don't you guys speak in tongues here? Well, we do, just not in this service. There's certain places and there's a time and a place for that. Well, you can't control the Holy Spirit, brother. When you have the Holy Spirit, man, you just get up and ah, start speaking. I remember that happened when I was a kid. I was at a church visiting this assembly of God when I was a kid and my, my parents were sitting next to me and I was there in my shiny church shoes, which I hated. And I was just sitting there. And all of a sudden the, the pastor was preaching a kind of a mellow sermon. And all of a sudden the guy next to me jumped up and started speaking in tongues. And I'm like, uh, what's up with this guy? Like, uh, I was like trying to figure it out. But the, 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 everybody just kind of waited. And then he sat down and then the pastor went on with the sermon. Now, if that happened at Athey Creek, we would tell you to sit down <laughs> and be quiet. Well, Brett, you shouldn't quench the spirit. No, the Bible says you're to do all things decently and in order. And if there's a speaking in tongues, there needs to be an interpretation of that tongue. Like there's really clear rules. And Paul says, um, of all the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, which is the least of all of them, anybody? Speaking in tongues, that's what Paul said. It's funny how tongues gets all the press. Everybody, you can go to churches today and if you walk in, they'll say, do you speak in tongues? And you're like, no. And they'll say, well, you're not even saved. And I'd say, well, you're not even biblical. Like that's not even close. You're not even close to being biblical with that sort of nonsense. Speaking in tongues is one of the many manifestations of the Holy Spirit, but it's the least of all of them. Um, there, there's other ones that are more important. The word of prophecy, which 1 Corinthians 14 says is a word of, of um, you know, exhortation, comfort, edification from the Lord through a brother or sister to a person who needs a word of encouragement. That's pretty, see, the Holy Spirit, we like to heebie-jeebie it up and make it look all, woo oh, Pastor Brett got a word from the Lord? He better speak high with a quiver. Oh, thus saith the Lord, and, and be really weird and stuff. Where did we get the weird thing? I love that the Holy Spirit is typified in the Bible by a dove. I love that. Have you ever heard a dove? It's like, that's all it's got. The Holy Spirit is not a screeching eagle. It's, it's not. It's not a waddling duck. It's, not, it's none of that. It's, it's a dove. I love that. I don't know why I went into this. I didn't go down to the other, other services. Um, but be that as it may, Here's the problem. Because of the abuses of things people say as the Holy Spirit, when really a lot of times it's theatrics or people just doing stuff that's not even really in the Bible, we've, we've made the mistake the other way and the church throws the baby out with the bathwater. A lot of churches say, well, the Holy Spirit's not really for today. Uh, there's a doctrine of basically the cessationists that say the Holy Spirit has ceased. That was just for the New Testament church, the speaking in tongues and healing and, and miracles and word of knowledge and all this stuff. That was for them. Oh man, the church becomes God's chosen frozen. If we leave the Holy Spirit out, we must uh, have the fullness of the Spirit-filled Christian life. And that's got to come. It's supernaturally natural. It's not us whooping and hollering and mustering up, you know, craziness. I love that the Holy Spirit moves in and through us, just like he did through Jesus. Jesus wasn't running around being a weirdo, but people were drawn to Jesus and said, oh, he does all things well. And they marveled at his gracious words. They didn't say, wow, he sure can swing from a chandelier. Did you see him flopping around on the ground? You never saw that. I remember I called the ministry of Rodney Howard Brown back in the 90s 
the Toronto Blessing. They were really into the holy laughter movement and slaying in the spirit and all this stuff. And I, I just talked, to, I wanted to talk to one of the pastors because I thought, man, give me some scripture, like help me out, I understand why you guys think this is so great. And he just said, well, the Holy Spirit moves and we can't control it. And I said, well, can you give me a biblical example of somebody being slain in the spirit? He said, well, sure. And he gave me the scripture there where Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane and the soldiers asked, which one of you are Jesus? And Jesus said, I am he. And all the Roman soldiers, clink, 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 fell over backwards. See, there it is, slaying in the spirit. Or Paul the apostle, when he was on the road to Damascus, um, the Lord knocked him off of his horse. Uh, and there he is laying on the ground, slew him in the spirit. And my problem with that being the proof text of why you slay somebody in the spirit, um, the problem I have with that is all those people were unsaved. They weren't even Christians. And I have no question in my mind the Lord can knock someone on their rear if he wants to. He can do that whenever he wants to. Some of you, the Lord may have done that before you were saved. He maybe knocked you down a little bit so you'd know your need for salvation. But do we make a church service around the slaying of the Spirit and stuff like, oh, we're gonna have a real Spirit-filled night, so we're gonna slay people in the Spirit. I don't see that in the Bible. I don't see slaying in the Spirit at all in the Bible. Speaking in tongues, yes. Word of knowledge, prophecy, healing, yes, yes. We need that. But let's not make stuff up that we don't need. Holy laughter, no. Being drunk in the Spirit, no. These are things people make up. Now, um, if I'm rubbing you the wrong way, um, I understand. Maybe you were raised in a traditional, charismatic kind of movement, you know, and you're, so you're, you're kind of like, I, I was there and, and the Lord knocked me over and I knew that. Well, again, I have no problem with understanding the Lord can knock someone over if he wants to. But I just don't believe we make church services around that and, and become sort of charismaniacs. Charismatic with a safety belt. See, the Holy Spirit, there's three relationships and this is where we either go one way or the other way wrong. Too hyper or we shut it off. Um, the three relationships, the first relationship we have with the Holy Spirit, the living water, is the Holy Spirit is with you. John 14, 17, Jesus said the Holy Spirit is with you and he shall be in you. But the with part of the Holy Spirit is before you were even saved, did you know the Holy Spirit was with you? Before you knew Jesus Christ as your personal savior, the Holy Spirit was there tapping you on the shoulder. Genesis chapter six, verse three says that the Spirit will not always strive with man, but some of you, the, Lord, the Holy Spirit was striving to make you understand your need for salvation. I hope you never get to that point where the Spirit ceases from striving to point you to Christ. But that's before you were saved, the Holy Spirit is with you. Then John chapter 20, verses 21 and 22, the Holy Spirit then becomes in you when you become a believer. The Holy Spirit is in you. John 20, 21, remember Jesus breathed on the disciples and he said, you know, um, he said, be filled with the Spirit, you know, breathed on them and receive ye the Holy Ghost, he said. And I believe when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit is then in you. Your body is a temple, even as Jesus was a temple, you become a temple to the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Um, the third one, by the way, is the church is the temple. I forgot to mention that earlier. So Jesus, your body, the church itself, temple of the Holy Spirit. But he will be with you first, in you. But thirdly, this is the interesting one, he will come upon you. <coughs> After the disciples got the John 20, breathing on, receiving the Holy Spirit in them, Jesus said, now go and wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Different preposition there. The Greek word is epi, which is our word, upon. And that word is an important word because it has to do with the Spirit coming upon you for the purpose of manifesting his power through you. Every Christian, I think, has the Holy Spirit in them, but does every Christian experience the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through them? That's the coming upon part. Um, it was even there in the Old Testament. Remember when Samson did these great feats of strength? It says that the Holy Spirit came upon Samson and he you know, slew all the Philistines. Uh, the Holy Spirit came upon Samson and he ripped the gates off the whole city and hauled him up on the top of a mountain. Um, like great, great feats of strength because the Holy Spirit coming upon. When Samson failed and he let his hair get bobbed by uh, Delilah, um, he stood up and he thought, I'm gonna beat these Philistines like I did before, but he didn't realize that the Holy Spirit was no longer upon him. And he was, had his eyes poked out and chained up and grinding at the wheel. So the coming upon of the Spirit is really important. It's part of the power of the Lord. Question, if you want the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon you, how do you get that? Well, Brett, I was raised that you gotta speak in tongues. 
Well, what if you don't know how to speak in tongues? Well, what you do is you get in the back of the church and have the brothers lay your hands on them and you say, okay, now speak in tongues. Well, what do I say? Uh, just say something. I don't know what to say. Say better buy a Honda, better buy a Honda, better buy a Honda. Just keep saying that. That actually, I've actually heard that story. That's a true story that somebody just starts saying stuff. And, and it's so sad because it's so contrived um, and that's how you get the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no. The Bible doesn't say that. What the Bible says is this about the coming upon of the Holy Spirit and how you get it. Jesus talked about this. He said, you fathers being evil know how to give good gifts to your kids. How much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Ghost to them that ask? Now, I do believe there's power when we come along each other and pray with each other, and even the laying on of hands, that's a biblical thing, and that's all good. But you know, you can even ask the Lord by yourself, Lord, would you fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit and, and manifest through me your power by your Holy Spirit? Just ask. You don't have to gyrate. You don't have to pray in King James, Lord, thou didst sustaineth all things and hope that the Holy Spirit comes upon you because you're King James ease. No, but all you gotta do is ask and the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's that river of, of depth that includes the fullness of the Spirit-filled Christian life, walk, prayer, all that stuff. Are you guys with me on this? This river is a symbol of that life uh, that comes in the power by the Holy Spirit. Um, next on our list of things to talk about, we got number three, the river of restoration. Uh, we're running out of time, so I better hurry. I don't know why I went so long with you guys. Um, I, I got off on the tangent of the screaming eagle and the quacking duck. Um, the river of restoration. Uh, it tells us here, and, and in a nutshell, it says the Dead Sea, or also called the Salt Sea, is going to come to life in the Millennial Kingdom. That's amazing. I, I've taken our groups to the Dead Sea. This picture right here is from Engedi, the, the very place that was mentioned in Zechariah. Engedi's where David hid from Saul and hid in the caves. He climbed up these cliffs of Engedi, and, and when we go to Israel, we climb up these very cliffs at least most of us, some people kind of freak out. There's only one section where there's like a foot, foot wide pathway where you kind of have to lean out and hold onto a cable as you're going on and you can only fall about 500 feet. It's a little scary for some, <laughs> some people, but it's a really high climb that we climb way up these cliffs, but you're overlooking this Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is also called the Salt Sea. It's the heaviest salt content body of water in the world. Um, the saltiness makes, it, saltiness makes it easy for you to float. That's why tourists like to go. But this is video footage that we shot last time we were there of Athey Creekers and us looking at the Dead Sea. It's really a, a beautiful place. These little rock badgers are really cute. We had to put them in there. Um, they're at Engedi. But um, it's the lowest point on earth. The Dead Sea is 1,292 feet below sea level. Um, and the, the area is desolate and dry. There's no plants or shrubs and everything's just dead. But people like to swim in it because it's like they say the salt water is really good for your skin. And also um, the mud, and there's athe creekers floating. Even if you're a like 0.3% body fat person, you still float uh, here. You can read a newspaper and just float. Um, and the salt crystals, you can feel them on the, on the, the floor. There's Jed and some of the guys, Mike, uh, some of our elders and stuff. This is a great group of guys, but they're all just having fun. They're doing this because um, people come from all over the world to float in this because it's, they, they believe it's healthy. Um, and they also smear the mud of the Dead Sea uh, on their faces, and they say it makes your skin as smooth as a baby's bottom. Uh, uh, so, so some of our Athey Creekers, they all mudded up a little bit, and it's, it's just kind of a fun place to goof around. Um, there's Joey and Pastor Gabe and Joe and the gang. Uh, David Frost, a uh, little hairdo. Uh, it, it's a fun place. Now, the thing is, though, this, this is a huge sea. It covers about 300 square miles. It has no outlet. The Jordan River flows in the north, but then it just dies. Everything dies. One time I went to where the Jordan flows into the Dead Sea, and I, I couldn't believe it. it. It made logical sense, but it was horrible. There were birds everywhere. And the reason there were birds everywhere is the unsuspecting fish um, would swim in the Jordan River and they'd come down to the Dead Sea. And as soon as they hit that salt water, poof, they die. And they float off to the shore and the birds get their salted fish uh, right there. And they just pick the flesh off and it stinks there. At the, and, and the Dead Sea is sort of a symbol of death, just total death. But I love the imagery because that's what the living water, you and I are dead in sin, the Bible says. We, we've sinned and we're, we're dead in our trespasses, the Bible said. Who will deliver me of this body of death, Paul the apostle said. 
but it's the living water that brings the dead waters alive. This imagery of Ezekiel is picturing what Jesus does for you and for me. And it says that the fresh water will flow into the Dead Sea and it'll be teeming with fish. And, and, uh, and then finally, lastly, almost done, um, it's, it's a river of fruitfulness. Along the river and around the Dead Sea, suddenly there'll be trees, fruit trees. And these fruit trees, if you look at the original language of the Hebrew, it says basically they're gonna have different kinds of fruit throughout the year, each tree. So it's not gonna be seasons where they get apples during the summer. It's apples during the summer, oranges during the spring, you know, pears during the fall, whatever. It's gonna be a multiple kind of deal, these trees of the millennial kingdom. It sounds pretty cool to me. And it's gonna be teeming with life. Why? Because the river of life in the millennial kingdom will bring life to the Dead Sea and that whole region of the world. Much of Israel fulfilling Bible prophecy has come back to life. Greenery everywhere, it's awesome. The deadest part is the Negev Desert from the Dead Sea all the way down to Elat in the south. But um, that's all gonna come to life during the millennial kingdom. Now some of you are like, well, good for the millennial kingdom people. They'll get to see the river of life, great for them. But here's the punchline. You and I, in the church age, we don't have to wait for the millennial kingdom to have the river of life. You and I have the river of life right now. Just like Jesus said to the woman at the well, if you drink of the water I give, you'll never thirst again. People still to this day are looking for that satisfaction and to fulfill a thirst. And they look to everything else to try to get it. Some of you are thirsty, so you go, what I need is Magnolia. Chip and Joanna, if I have shiplap, then I'll be happy. <laughs> shiplap makes people happy. Some of you guys are like, no, the restoration of this old vehicle, man, I'm out of my garage and I've been working on this for years and spending tens of thousands of dollars trying to fix up this old vehicle. And you're like, that'll make me happy. And then as soon as you finish it, it's perfect. And then somebody scratches it with their shopping cart and you're not happy. Things in this life, oh, they're fun, they're great. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. But what we need really is the river of life to breathe new life into these dead, sinful souls. And that's the first thing. We need to tap into the river of life. If you're not a Christian, you need to be saved. If you're a saved Christian, you need to remember where that source is. It's not, you know, having a fancy house or an amazing job or lots of money. That's not the river of life. Jesus is the only source that truly satisfies. You gotta always go to Jesus. He's the river. We have that river right now. I love it. Time to jump in, time to drink. In Jesus' name, let's pray. If you would, just with an attitude of prayer as Christians, uh, just be in prayer. I wonder if there might be a few of you who aren't saved. You've yet to accept Jesus. And you've not tasted and seen, like the Bible says, taste and see that the Lord is good. He is the one that refreshes our, our barren, thirsty souls. And if you're not a Christian, would you consider accepting Christ? What does it mean to be saved? How do you drink of the water of life? Well, it's this, you're a sinner. You deserve death and hell, just like me. But the Lord loved you so much that he sent his son, Jesus, to die on the cross in your place, taking your penalty. When Jesus did that, he said, it is finished. The finished work of the cross is forgiveness for anyone who would receive it. So you gotta repent and say, okay, I realize I'm a sinner. Acknowledging your sin before God and saying, I am a sinner deserving of punishment. Repent, and then confess with your mouth. Romans 10, verse nine and 10, confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, that God raised him from the dead, and it says you will be saved. That's the river of life. And you jump in spiritually by accepting the work of the cross with your mouth, from your heart, you'll be saved. You'll have eternal life. It doesn't mean your life will be perfect. It means you'll be perfectly forgiven. And when you die, you get to spend eternal life with Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. If you've not done that, I'd love to pray with you. I'm not gonna embarrass you or sign you up for anything or do anything weird, but right where you're sitting, or if you're watching online, you can jump in with us too. Um, we'd love to have you let us know if you're, you're one who's accepting Jesus, even right now. But I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession and anybody who wants to pray with me, they can. But with everybody else's heads bowed, if that's you, would you acknowledge between you, me and the Lord right now, would you acknowledge your need for Jesus that you're gonna pray this prayer? If you wanna accept Jesus, would you look up at me and give me a quick wave? I just wanna acknowledge you before we pack it up for the day. Let me just look around for a second. Awesome, awesome, you guys over here, that's great. 
I'm gonna pray this prayer of confession of faith. And I'm gonna ask the whole church, let's pray this out loud. It's so cool to get behind these several who are saying yes. And, and let's just pray and drink of the water of life. Let's do this right now. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. That he rose up from the grave and that all my sins are forgiven. Thank you, Lord. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray blessing upon these people who've just confessed you. Lord, I pray that they would know more than just the, the, the feelings or anything, but they would know the logic of your word that says that there's a penalty for sin, but you've paid that that they're no longer under that condemnation of sin. And just lift that burden, Lord, I pray, off their shoulders and that they'd have the joy that comes from knowing you and, and that their souls would be refreshed as they've tasted and seen that you forgive our sins. Lord, just bless these people. May they grow in their knowledge of you and your goodness and your word. Lord, for the old timer Christians in this room, help us not to go to other sources, other watering holes, for you alone are the source of refreshment, Lord. You're the river of life. We look to you and we thank you. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.